We're going to be reading from Acts 24, so if you've got a Bible on you or one on your phone, why don't you grab it? It'll appear behind me, uh, and we're going to read nearly the whole chapter, not quite the whole chapter, but we're going to read uh, the guts of Acts 24 this morning. Um, So why don't you read along with me, whether you're joining us at home or you're with us in the building today. This is Acts 24. This is God's Word. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order to not weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. And when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God that these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was the one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. And he ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. And we thank God for his word that still speaks to us today. So as I just mentioned, we're in this final stretch uh, of the book of Acts. And I know it has been a stretch, right? We've been here for a year. Part of me loves that, right? Part of me loves that for a year we have been wrestling our way through this book, digging into verse after verse, not skipping bits, trying to take on this big giant text, which is so deeply significant for the life of the present church, right? And it is the story of how the church came alive. That's what we call it. And in some ways, the tone for the book of Acts, if you can think back this far, right? Right back, week 
one, which was probably in about 2018 or something. Who knows? If you can think back that far to week one, in Acts 1, okay, we read this verse, okay? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In many ways, Acts 1, verse 8, we get the direction of travel for the whole rest of the book. And on one level, it is a physical direction of travel. This thing which starts in Jerusalem, it moves out into Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. It is a physical direction of travel, okay? And that's one way of looking at the book of Acts, right? If you, if you kind of just wanted to take big, broad brushstrokes of this book when you're finished and maybe think about what has happened or what it's meant, one way is this direction of travel. Something started in Jerusalem, and by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, it is at the ends of the earth. But then there's this other way of looking at the direction of travel in the book of Acts. And actually, it's one that's more about power and influence. And as we've made our way through Acts, okay, there's been this move of God from the very heart of the Jesus movement, Jesus himself to the disciples, as we're reading in Acts 1, okay, what Jesus said, what happened amongst his closest followers, right? It starts there, no influence, nobodies, fishermen, people, laborers, normal, everyday people, right? They're nobodies. But by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, we're in Rome, the very heart of the empire. We're headed towards Rome. In this last block, that is where we are headed. And at the end of this passage, uh, the kind of passages that, we, that we're looking at today actually start about midway through Acts 21, and they run right through to about Acts 25 and verse 12. And in that block, we actually, we know them as the trials of Paul. But in those very last verses, in, in sort of towards the middle of Acts 25, it says, you shall go to Rome. So we know where it's going. From a ragtag, small group of people with no influence, no status, nobody people, we're going right to the seat of power in the empire. It doesn't get any more ends of the earth than the heart of the empire when it comes to power and influence. And as I say, we've been reading through today, or we should be reading through, and maybe whenever you go home, you can kind of look through that long block. We don't have time to read about four chapters of Acts today, but maybe you would take a read at them later, okay? They're called the Trials of Rome. Paul arrives in Jerusalem in Acts 21, and it's actually in that chapter that he is first arrested, okay? And there follows the series of trials and defenses in front of a whole host of different authorities, both Jewish religious authorities and Roman authorities, like one after another after another, and they will have Eventually lead him to Rome. Some of Joy and my favorite TV is true crime stuff, right? Like that's, that's where we are, right? You know, period dramas can do one. I'm not interested in any of that sort of stuff, right? True crime, give me all the mental court cases, right? That's what I want to, that's what I want to see. And the more you watch these sorts of things, the more you realize actually it's not actually a court case singular. Usually it's like this series of trials, like from one trial to the appeal process to like when they get through that, then they appeal the appeal and it like goes on and on and on. It's, it's a series of trials. It never seems to stop. And so it is in these chapters in Acts, like one thing after another, after another, after another. And what boils to the surface in these series of trials over about four chapters are kind of two big themes, politics 
and citizenship. Politics and citizenship are the things that kind of come to the surface, and that feels especially live for us in an election week, right? Politics and citizenship. I was walking into our polling center on Thursday doing my civic duty and voting, right? And on my way, there's some guilty people looking down right now, okay? I'm on my way in, and this man approaches me with a leaflet for his particular party. I'll not tell you who it was, but he comes and he says, hey, would you like a leaflet for, and then he tells me the name of the person, and I went, oh, that guy? No, thanks, right? So I, I walk past that guy, but I don't realize as I'm doing it that there's a lady who lives in our street. I don't really know her, but she knows, she knows who we are, uh, and she, I, I, I kind of, I walk past that guy, I'm walking into the polling center, and as I'm doing it, I hear this voice from over my shoulder, and she says something along the lines of, oh, I'm so glad you told him to clear off. I mean, you wouldn't want to be voting for them, right? And our politics and our citizenship, they're intertwined, aren't they? Our politics and our citizenship. I mean, think about it. You're in the office or you're around your family circle, maybe today, and you're talking to them about the election because it's all we've been talking about for the last couple of days. And eventually somebody says, oh, I voted for X, Y, and Z. And you go, ugh, you're that guy, right? Like you voted for that guy. You're one of those people, right? Because our politics says something about our citizenship. And the reality is, for most of us in Northern Ireland, in our lifetime, our citizenship has said something about our politics. And both are at work through these trials of Paul. Politics on show in all sorts of ways, from the sorts of things that these various people don't want to do or want to do in order not to offend other people. There's politics at work, and also there's citizenship at work too. And that's a funny thing when it comes to Paul, when you think about it. He speaks often of his relationship with Jesus, his longing for the kingdom. That's fairly obvious. He also speaks at length about his religious background, his religious life. Think about that passage in the book of, uh, in the book of Philippians where he goes on about his qualifications as a leader in terms of his Jewish background. Like He goes on and on and on, and yet in his life, he speaks very little of Rome. He speaks very little about it. And yet in one of the key moments throughout these trials, which changes the course of how things were going for him, he was about to be flogged at this moment, okay, in in Acts 22, verse 25. This was his admission. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Paul was a Roman citizen. He was Roman. Paul, citizen of Rome, but belonged to Jesus. So what's really going on in what are a pretty dizzying series of trials where we're, we're encountering politics and citizenship? What's going on here? Things that perhaps more than ever we're wrestling with as we try to be followers of Jesus in our world and yet wrestle with how we are to think and live and vote and lean in this life. What's really going on here? And how does it speak to us today? Well, in the trials of Paul, I think we can look at two things today. Truth and confession. We can look at truth and confession. And the first of those is truth. Let's just read um, a few verses from Acts 23. This is Acts 23, verses 23 to 30. This is what it says. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. 
And go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. And he wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias to his excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him. So I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against them that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against this man, I sent them to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against them. Truth and politics are two things that have firmly been in the spotlight in my generation and in yours. From the Clinton-Lewinsky trial of the late 90s with that famous, I did not have sexual relations with Miss Lewinsky line, okay? And we all found out later that that turned out to be categorically untrue. To Trump, I mean, I don't even know really where I'm going to start with Trump, right? Let's just go with the presidency that will forever be synonymous with the phrase fake news, right? Or Boris and Partygate, right? Politics and truth have very much been in the spotlight. But nothing comes close to the former supreme leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-il, and the facts about his life, okay? Such as these, a few gems for you today in case you didn't know. Kim Jong-il actually invented the hamburger, right? I know you didn't, I know you didn't know that, okay? Minju Jong-sun, the, I mean, that was my best attempt at pronunciation, by the way. The North Korean publication credit Kim Jong-il with creating the hamburger. According to the paper, the leader invented a brand new sandwich and named it Double Bread with Meat, which I love. The new food was meant to supply quality nutrition to teachers and students. Next, the plant was set up for mass double bread with meat production, right? So truth number one about Kim Jong-il, he invented the hamburger. Truth number two, he had incredible golfing ability, right? According to his biography, his own words, right? Kim Jong-il first picked up a golf club in 1994 at North Korea's only golf course. He shot a 38 under par round of 18 that included no fewer than 11 holes in one, right? Obviously true. Of course it's true. The greatest golfer that's ever lived played once, okay? And finally, my own personal favorite about his life. Uh, In his own biography, he stated that he never went to the toilet. Never in his whole life. No need of a number one or a number two. I mean, how is that? I mean, he just never needed the lube. I mean, imagine that. What a life. Incredible. Truth. Truth. In a world in which, in the world in which we live, it's often hard to know just what to believe is true. I mean, I think we know that that is not true, right? But very often, it's hard to know what's not true. They say that truth is always a casualty in war. And it appears that it is every bit as much a casualty in the courts throughout the trials of Paul. What we've just read is the letter written by the Roman tribune. He was one level of authority in the kind of Roman judicial system, okay? And his name was Claudius Lysias, and it's written to the Roman governor, Felix. Felix was above Claudius Lysias, okay? And on the face of it, all of it seems fine, right? When you read the letter, you think, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense, except it's bending the truth. The bottom line is that back in Acts 22, he had seen the disturbance that had occurred as the result of Paul's arrest and his defense, okay? The things that he says to the Jewish people that seized him at the time. And in order to get to the bottom of of what actually was going on, where did all this disturbance come from? 
He'd ordered Paul to be flogged to get to the bottom of it. It was kind of a fairly common thing that the Romans did. If they wanted to get the truth, they just flogged you because it was their opinion that if you were flogged, you, would, you were likely to be more truthful than you would be if you weren't. So flog him, get the truth out of him, find out what's happened here. Except it was illegal to flog a Roman citizen. In fact, it was illegal to bind a Roman citizen when he was innocent. It was really serious business in that day, especially for a tribune, right? A tribune's pretty low down the rung of, you know, the ladder in terms of power and authority in Rome. And binding a Roman citizen, let alone having him set up to be flogged when he was innocent and they were just, they were just trying to find out the truth. Like, this was a serious deal. So in some ways, he writes the letter to kind of get out ahead of it, right? You can understand why he's like, well, you know, don't want to find out that this happened. So I'm going to write the letter to him so that he knows what happened here. And in it, he switches up the order of events. He makes a virtue out of the problem. And that it was because he discovered Paul was a Roman citizen that he rescued him from the mob in the first place. See, it all seems okay on the face of it. But it's not true. Of the principal verbs in the passage... Nine of them are in the first person. In other words, I did, I discovered, I brought him, I found, and on and on and on and on. There was untruth going on here. And it it was all about how good he was. See how good I am at my job. I have got to the bottom of this disturbance on my initiative. And I have found out. And here he is. And now I hand him over to you to further find out what's going on here. There's untruth going on. Or we could look at the accusations against Paul in chapter 24. It says this, We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. And he even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. So they accuse him of three things primarily, okay? Number one, he's a troublemaker. Number two, he's a ringleader of a dangerous sect called the Nazarenes. And number three, he's desecrated the temple, right? That's what they accuse him of. These are all really pretty serious things in those days. At the end of the day, the Romans deeply valued stability and peace. Why? Because it was good for business. It was good for power. It was good for authority. If the place is stable, then the powerful stay powerful and the weak stay low. So they valued that. They didn't like people or groups who rocked the boat. And on the temple front, they'd given the Jewish authorities a whole bunch of additional power to kind of deal with stuff that happened around the temple because they didn't really want to get involved. So in some ways, the Jewish people had wide-ranging power to deal with offenses in their own temple. This was serious, but it wasn't true. It wasn't true. He'd only been in Jerusalem for a few days before the arrest, and he hadn't preached or taught or really even drawn attention to himself. How on earth could he have caused all the trouble that they said he'd caused? Second, he was a follower of the way, the same way that his accusers had walked in for generations. He certainly wasn't the leader Jesus was, right? The Pharisees were a sect. The Sadducees were a sect. They were all sects inside the Jewish faith. Nothing was new about this. How was he any different? And far from desecrating the temple, he'd come to present offerings for the poor and sacrifices in the temple. How on earth could he have desecrated it? Truth? No. Just like Lysias had tried to, tried to bend the truth in order to show how good he was, these guys had bent the truth in order to try and tell how bad Paul was. So what was the truth? 
We're right in these moments. Paul is caught between two crushing forces. As we walk through our future church series in Revelation, we see that again and again we find this same word crops up throughout those letters to the seven churches. This Greek word thlips us. It, it's translated as tribulation throughout that book, but really what it means is pressure. It's pressure. And Paul is being crushed between these two pressures in this moment of time, right? In the book of Revelation, it was the pressure of living in the kingdom and the power of the empire. But in this case, he is literally caught between two giant forces. On the one side, the faith of Jerusalem, right? It's a faith that goes back two millennia, right? That's a big deal. And on the other side, you've got the rule of Rome, which is extended to three million square miles. Jerusalem had history and tradition. Rome had organization and conquest. And here he stood right in the middle. He should be squashed. He should be hopeless. Except I don't think Paul ever saw things that way. As we'll see in a minute, Paul makes a defense to the accusations. But yet, he never, for example, just says that the tribune tried to flog me, right? That would be the obvious way to kind of get out of things, wouldn't it? Just say like, well, you know, bad form. He tried to flog me. It should be him that's in trouble here and not me, right? You would think that's what you or I would do if you were in his position, Or that nobody's charges have ever stuck. Just let me go. But he never does that. He should be squashed. He could just assimilate into into life their way and play their games. For example, later on in, in in, in Acts 24, he has this opportunity to bribe his way out of prison, right? He actually expects him. Felix expects him to bribe his way out. But he doesn't. Again and again and again, he has the opportunity to do it. And he doesn't do it. He doesn't play their games. He never saw things the way we might. How? How is that? Well, it's because he held on to a truth. The same truth that had started the trouble right in the very beginning. You see, back in Acts 22, as he is arrested, what does he do? Well, you can read it for yourself. He just speaks of his Damascus road experience. He gets arrested there, and what's his defense? It's his Damascus Road experience. He talks about the day he met Jesus, the day his life changed, the day that all the contents of his life, all the things he valued and zeal for how he lived, got emptied out, and in its place was Jesus and his way. And the thing that started the trouble was the person who started his heart to beat, and he wasn't afraid to tell them. Paul didn't see the huge trouble and trials he was in the way we might. Not just because of our truth, but because of his truth. What Jesus had done, what he was calling him to, the God he had worshipped as a boy, the God he had thrown his whole life after as a Pharisee was the one whose glory he saw in the face of Jesus on that road of Damascus. And something had happened that day. His life was changed and he would forever be someone that spoke that truth out. He knew it as deeply in these days as he had all of those years before. And he knew that the truth of Jesus Christ, he hadn't come to destroy all the Jewish authorities and all that they accused him of. It hadn't come to destroy. The Jesus he saw that day had come to fulfill it all. And now, and throughout all of these episodes, his life couldn't help but continue to speak that truth out and point other people to it. There was untruth all around him. And Paul, in many ways, he didn't get into it. He just spoke of the one truth 
he was most sure of. Jesus Christ, his way, and his call in his life. The first thing in focus here in these trials of Paul is truth. But secondly, there is confession. There's confession. A short while after her death in 1997, a whole host of uh, previously unpublished letters and writing from Mother Teresa were published. And I remember reading one at the time, and it really struck me. And it was this short paragraph that read like this. Jesus has a very special love for you. But as for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see, that I listen and I do not hear. She wrote that in 1979 to somebody who was a spiritual kind of advisor in her life, the Reverend Michael van der Piet. And what came to be widely known through these publications was that in her 66 years of working amongst the least in Calcutta, in places and with people of real pain and real difficulty, she had struggled to encounter and know God's presence and voice for up to 50 of those 66 years. And I believe that we might call that a, a kind of no man's land, wouldn't we? We think about our own walks with Jesus, when we think about times in our lives when we have felt distant from him and when maybe, we, when maybe we have struggled to hear his voice, when maybe we have struggled to know his presence. I was with a Presbyterian minister yesterday who was talking about those two years of lockdown and he said that he fundamentally and profoundly for, for the, the most deafening silence in his life had known the no man's land of struggling to encounter God's presence, God's voice, God's leading in those two years. We have all known that in our lives, haven't we? Perhaps in times that we're busy or in periods where life is transitioning, I would hazard a guess that every single person in this room has known the experience of no man's land in your life. And I say that because in this particular part of the narrative through Acts 23 to 25, Paul enters a kind of missional no man's land. We find out towards the end of chapter 24 that as he is passed from one trial to the next, from one leader or authority to the next, that eventually he would spend over two years just sat in a cell. He was guilty of nothing. Nobody ever found him guilty, but he just sat in a cell for over two years. That is on top of all of the trials and the time that would it take for them to be carried out that we read throughout those passages. He just sat there for two years. Years, one after another, each Roman authority finds him not guilty of any crime, but doesn't want to judge him because of his Roman citizenship. He's Roman. They can't simply just like kill him or get rid of him, which was kind of their MO most of the time. If something's an inconvenience, yep, just get rid of them, right? They can't do it because he's Roman. According to their own laws, he'd done nothing wrong. So they, they couldn't do that. But because of the politics, his citizenship had saved them. But because of politics, they couldn't just release him either. There'd be an uproar. Or worse still, the, Jew, the Jews that hate him, they would kill him. And then they'd have to conduct a proper trial because a Roman citizen had been killed by a bunch of Jewish people. And then that would be a, the, the threat of even more unrest at the time. So, no man's land. He's not guilty, but he's not going anywhere. And for someone of Paul's life and passion, right? I mean, just think about Paul. Paul. 
when you think about him and all of his letters and all that he did in his life, okay, he, his life appeared to be constantly on purpose, wasn't it? Like one place after another. He appeared to be constantly on purpose, constantly moving, constantly working, constantly fruitful. I mean, that, that is in so many ways the testimony of his life. Like he just started one thing after another. He was always up to something. In prison, he's still writing letters, the letters that we still read today, right? He was constantly moving. And then it just stops. All of a sudden, it just stops. What would become of the mission God had breathed into his life on that Damascus road? It's difficult, right? Previous to Planting Central, I was the worship pastor at um, Carmoney, which is a large church outside Belfast. And it was in a season where we were like leading at every event there was under the shining sun, right? You were constantly going to do conferences and stuff like that. And it was, it was great. I loved it. It was really encouraging. It was a brilliant time to be uh, in leadership in a particular area. And then it turns out when you plant a church, nobody cares about you anymore, right? People, you stop getting invites to do anything because it's like me and eight other people have got a church in Belfast City Centre. So you go from being somebody for whom it's like, oh, right, you know, you're, you're kind of of a reasonable profile. You're doing stuff around the church. Not that I care about that, by the way. But it, it definitely does something in your heart when all of a sudden it's like, Nobody wants you to do anything anymore, right? You All of a sudden, it's like, I'm useless, right? You, you just, uh, even though we planted the church, we're really passionate about it. It's not like all of a sudden you became useless, but all of a sudden you feel useless. And Paul is in this moment in his life where I'm sure he sits in that cell and thinks, is this it? Has it stopped? Has the call in my life gone? Is God going to find somebody else to do what I thought he had me for? Would it stop here too? And what about his life, you know? He's in no man's land. And so there's this trial, okay? And before the Roman governor Felix... Uh, before the Roman governor, Felix, come the Jewish leaders. And in this particular case, they'd had a first go with the Sanhedrin, but now in front of the Roman governor, they've lawyered up, right? They've kind of done the thing that most people would do. They've lawyered up. In this case, his name is Tertullus, okay? And he starts with flattery, right? He gets in front of the governor, and this is how he starts. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought, I mean, it's the most groveling thing you've ever heard in your whole life, has brought about reforms in this nation everywhere and in every way. Most excellent, Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Again, right? This stuff is not true as well. Okay, it's flattery, but it's fundamentally not true. Felix was not popular at the time. He hadn't brought any real reform. He had been a slave who had kind of made his way through up into a place of influence. And one of the um, writers of the time said that he ruled like a slave, right? Like he was brutal in his ruling. He, it was like he never got over his experience. So he led, with, he, he led at that time with real brutality, okay? Nobody, no Jewish person thought of him with any gratitude whatsoever. He was a heavy-handed ruler who used force to crush unrest or opposition. One commentator describes this approach as nauseating, right? Which it is, okay? And you can feel it when you read it, right? It's, it's nauseating. It's like trying to butter him up, right? It's grim. And then there's like this moment where it feels like, okay, those first couple of verses, it feels like 
he must get a look from Felix. I sort of assume that he's kind of made this approach and Felix gives him like, get on with it, sort of look, right? Because he, he goes from all this everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix. We acknowledge this with profound gratitude. And then it feels like this next line. But in order not to weary you further, I'm going to get on with things, right? Because it feels like he must get a get on with it sort of look from this governor. So he, he, he decides, well, I'm not going to waste any more time with the flattery. I'm just going to get on to, the, to the, the stuff of the trial itself. So he gets to the accusations. And we've read them already. Troublemaker, sect leader, desecrating the temple. Serious charges. And while so much of Paul's life and struggle, okay? There's lots of parallels between his life and the life of Jesus. Lots of commentators would kind of point to that, that his journey looked like Jesus in lots of ways. Here, unlike Jesus, he defends himself. If you remember back to Easter, as we walked through the journey to the cross, Jesus never defends himself, but Paul does. And the defense reads like a lawyer's response, okay? You can read it for yourself in Acts 24, verses 10 to 21, okay? But the short version, okay, breaking it down as to what he does, okay? The short version is what your lawyer would probably do today if you end up in court. First, he concedes and he confesses to something that's not a crime, right? So in verse 14, in other words, it's not a crime to worship the same God as you. He says that, you know? People would do that in court. I'm accused of this. As far as I'm aware, that's not a crime, right? So he says that. Secondly, he draws attention to his own character. He was there to give money. In other words, he's saying, would somebody like this do the things that you accuse him of? He undermines their argument of disturbance. He says that actually there was none in verse 18. In verse 19, he uses the legal system itself. In the time, if you were an accuser, you had to actually be in the room. If you wanted to bring an accusation, you had to be there. So he says, these guys from Asia Minor, they have brought these charges against me. Where are they? They're not here, so the charges don't count. And finally, he points out that the real issue is theology, and that's not something that you Romans are interested in. He defends himself. And the reality is he does it beautifully. He defends himself better than Tertullus that the Jewish authorities had lawyered up with. But at the heart of what he has to say, right, it's not the legal argument. It's not the legal argument that draws our eye in what Paul says on that particular day. The heart of his argument is a confession. This is what he says. In verse 14, however, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that's written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have. But there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. This was his confession. But actually, it just reads like a testimony, doesn't it? His confession was a testimony. It's not a confession to a crime. It's a testimony to who he is. He says that he worshipped the same God, the God of our fathers. He shared the same truths, the law and the prophets. He held the same hope in the resurrection. And he longed for the same ambition to live with a clear conscience. At the heart of this trial is a confession. And in so many ways... We need to read this confession today and realize that Paul's confession in his life needs to become our confession in ours. Worship, faith, hope, and ambition. He talks about worship, faith, hope, and ambition. 
that we worship Jesus as a counterformation to all of the other longings of our lives, all of the things that will clamor for your attention in this life, all the stuff that clamored for his then. I'm sure the freedom he longed for. I'm sure the direction he wanted to go on. I'm sure the untruths that the Romans had spoken out. All of that stuff would be clamoring for his eyes in that moment. And what does he speak of? Right, worship of God. Our confession first needs to be of worship, a worship that is a counterformation to all of the stuff of our world. Secondly, that we also share a faith, a faith that reaches back, like right back, like all the way back to these roots in Acts. Faith that is okay with living in painful places, that is okay with doubt, that can handle hard things. That our confession would be one of worship, would be one of faith. Thirdly, would be one of hope. Hope that is in something that is beyond ourselves. That is beyond what is in front of us. That is beyond what we are in right now. Hope that things will one day be made new. And finally, an ambition. And all of us live with ambition, don't we? Ambition to be this, to do that, to have that, to go somewhere, whatever it is. I'm not maligning ambition. Paul's ambition, to live well in this world. Worship, faith, hope, and ambition. That's his confession that day. And the only question I have is how? Like how is he able to make that confession that day with all that's going on in his life, with all of the pain and all of the stuff that's happening, okay? How? In the middle of all of the pain. Don't forget that the people bringing the charges, right? They were his people. It wasn't the Romans bringing the charges. It was his own people. In the pain of the moment and the loss of direction and the uncertainty of what the Romans would do with them. How else could he make this his confession? You know, when I look at my own life, maybe particularly in the last few years, I can see how sometimes the most profoundly painful and difficult spaces of my life have been the places where I have been most sure of Jesus. Even though it's hurt, even though it's been difficult, I've been most sure that he's there. I've been most knowing of his voice. And yet I can also say that some of the best times where things have grown, where stuff is flying, where I feel like my life is going exactly where I thought it would, they've been spaces where I have known the most lostness. You know, people like me, we tend to get up and we talk about trials and struggles uh, and we tend to use the character of God filter as we do it, right? We'll say things like he's sovereign. We'll say things like he's in control. We'll say things like suffering is the way to a deep work in your life. And those things are all fundamentally true. I believe them. I see them. I know them in my own life, in my own heart, and I see them in the lives of others. But what if we needed to look at this passage and sometimes look at our own lives through the presence of God filter? You see, even though Paul was living in what I'm sure felt like no man's land of his work and purpose, the fundamental thing was he still knew God's voice. Right in the middle of the trials, this is what God says to him in uh, Acts 23 verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and he said, take courage. As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. God spoke to Paul. I find those few short words, some of the most profoundly comforting words in all of Scripture. The Lord stood near Paul. 
And it's profound, right? He was just about to be flogged. That was the truth about that moment in his life. He was just about to be flogged. He has all the power of Rome on one side. What we don't know, what, what, well, what you will know is next he is sent to Rome. Who is Caesar at that time? Nero, right? That's not exactly brilliant, is it, right? You're going to Rome. You're not exactly going, hallelujah, I'm out of this prison in the middle of Caesarea. You're going to Rome to see Nero. I mean, that's a disaster most likely, right? That's what you're thinking if you're him. He has all the power of Rome on one side. And he's all the power of the Jewish faith on the other Rome, who just like to get rid of nuisances. High priests who want them dead. Part of the passage in the middle of, I think, Acts 22, it talks about 40 assassins who made an oath not to eat until they had killed Paul. Often I think about what happened to those 40 assassins. Like, did they starve to death? Like, I don't know. The Bible never tells us. But 40 men say, we won't eat until he's dead. They never kill him. So I don't know what happens to them. Getting to Rome wasn't likely from where he stood, was it? He's just rotting in a prison in the middle of nowhere. The Lord had told him he would go to Rome earlier on in the book of Acts. How on earth is he going to get to Rome from here? Passed from one trial to the next, from one person that didn't want to do anything to the next, to just sitting in a cell for two years. Rome is not likely. Maybe he dies here. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he spends the rest of his life in prison. Maybe he never leaves Jerusalem. Maybe they let him free and the Jews kill him. Who knows? But yet, the Jesus who got him this far promised to lead him further still. And better still, he was right there. And so what does Paul do? Takes him at his word and he confesses. I want to acknowledge today that you may well be in the no man's land of your faith either of life and circumstances or maybe the place where you haven't felt the presence of God in some time. Maybe this is like, Paul, a moment of pressure on all sides for you as you sit today, where maybe there's pain, maybe there's doubt, maybe there's accusation. Perhaps life just doesn't look like you hoped it would. And I don't want to gloss it today. I don't want to just throw out platitudes to you to try and make you feel a little bit better about where you are. I want us as a church to be able to see you where you are today in the same way that the Lord saw Paul then. It is my prayer as we speak today that you might encounter the Lord who would come and stand near to you. Because this, as we read it, isn't about a character building exercise. This is about the presence of God drawn near to somebody in a truly difficult moment in their life and are seeing his experiencing and knowing that for Paul, that was enough. May it be enough for you today too. May you know the God who comes and stands near to you. Because he stands near to Paul and yet he doesn't promise him that he'd make life easy. He doesn't promise him that the accusations would go away. He never promised that he'd get off free. He never promised that he'd be vindicated. He just stood beside him and spoke to him and promised where he would go next. And that was enough. We are part of God's mission to this world, our lives and every life to make all things new. That's the call on our lives. That's the reality that we live in. We join with him in our relationship with him. He doesn't promise that we won't suffer or doubt or hurt or feel disoriented or experience seasons in no man's land. He doesn't promise any of that. 
Maybe we'll know pain and poverty in our lives. Maybe we'll know plenty. Maybe we'll know joy. But we are called to hold to and tell our truth and to let our truth about Jesus and his work be our confession, even when it's hard. And rely on that presence that might just tell us what we are to be and where we are to go next and that his presence with us might be enough. I love what N.T. Wright writes in this particular passage in Acts. This is what he says. The gospel is all about putting the world right. His doing so in Jesus, his doing so at the end, and his doing so for individuals in between is both a sign and a means of what is to come. Luke wants his readers to see the life of the church itself in that same way. We shouldn't expect a comfortable ride. We shouldn't imagine that people will leave us alone, will not challenge us as to what we're doing, as to how our faith belongs in the public world. If we are the people in and through whom God is putting into effect the setting right that happened in Jesus and anticipating the setting right that will happen at the end, we should expect to see that uncomfortable but necessary setting right going on all over the place, sometimes in martyrdom and sometimes in vindication and acquittal as the church makes its way in this world. We are the setting right people. And for Paul, right in these moments, it looked like trial after trial after trial after trial. We are the setting right people. This passage, which is all about politics and citizenship, is really firstly all about truth. Paul's truth wasn't just our truth, it was his truth. I love that you hear that phrase very often, you know, beware the truth shall find you out. In many ways for Paul, it was that his truth found him out throughout all of these trials. Because he held on to that truth, no matter how hard these moments were. He knew that to be the truth, so he was okay with the trials he was in. And secondly, this is all about confession. It's all about a confession that pointed to worship, that pointed to faith, that pointed to hope, and pointed to ambition. That somehow in the middle of all he experienced, he wasn't just able to hold on to truth, he was able to confess that truth. And that he was able to do it because he knew the presence of God. He knew the presence of the one who stood near him. Might you know that today where you are, whatever you're walking through, whatever life looks like right now, might you know the presence of the one who would come and stand near to you?